0: As I was uh, growing up, from time to time, my parents would just make really bad parenting decisions, and I felt like it was my obligation to uh, to coach them a little bit. I remember, you know, my parents making decisions, and I would say, you know, that that really is not fair. The decision you made right there, that's not fair. What you did, and you know what I discovered is that they weren't really very teachable to me. And uh, <laughs> you know, I remember them saying, "Well, you know what? Life isn't fair. Life isn't fair. Just get tougher." Now, I don't, my mom probably didn't say that like that. You know, she probably just, you know, gave me a little kiss on the head and said, oh, honey, life isn't fair, and gave me milk and cookies. But that's not the way I choose to remember it. I choose to remember it as them saying, life's not fair. You're not always going to be treated the same as every, everyone else is treated, or you're not always going to be treated uh, equally or as you think you deserve to be treated. But fortunately, God's always fair, right? I don't know. I'm going to make the argument this morning that actually what we need is not fairness from God. We need something much better. We need grace. And grace is much greater than fairness. And what we are celebrating on this weekend is actually the ultimate demonstration of the grace of God, which is that we as broken sinners didn't deserve to have our sin paid for by someone else, but God let Jesus pay on our behalf. That's not fair to Jesus, but it's exactly what we needed. So Jesus paid our debt and gives us the removal of sin and eternal life. That is the ultimate demonstration of grace. It's what we celebrate on Easter. We really celebrate it every Sunday, but we're kind of focused in this morning on the grace of God. So what I want us to do is we're going to be looking at this this parable in Matthew chapter 20 because I think it's such a great illustration and a great definition of what what is God's grace to us. All right, so we're going to dig into one of Jesus' stories, Matthew chapter 20. If you're not there already, please turn there. And let's begin reading in verse 1. Jesus said this, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. So a parable is just a story. It's a, it's a story that has a setting that's just kind of everyday. Immediately the audience would have been able to connect to the everyday nature of the parables. You can just imagine Jesus walking through the field, talking with his disciples, and he stops. And he goes, you know what? The kingdom of God is kind of like, like a field. The kingdom of God, it's, it's like a mustard seed. It's like that mustard tree over there. You know what? The kingdom of God, it's like, see that vineyard over there? It's like a vineyard. Kingdom of God is like fishermen casting their nets, right? So it's always this everyday setting, but then it'll have a a theological or an ethical or a moral twist that they don't expect. So as in the case of this story, Jesus gives them the setting that they would have understood. Uh, there's a man who's a landowner. And he owns a vineyard. And every single one of them would have known landowners or known of landowners. And they would have seen vineyards all around them. And for many of them, they would have been actually the day laborers. So they can imagine themselves in this setting. There's a landowner who owns a vineyard. He goes out early in the morning. He begins to hire day laborers. And I'm, I, would, I don't think it's a stretch to think that many, if not the majority of Jesus' listeners were poor people. Frequently, they were the day laborer type, who on the social ladder were very near the bottom. In fact... Uh, In some respects, they were actually below slaves because slaves were attached to a family and slaves didn't have to worry every single day if they would get a meal. But the day laborers did. They would go out early in the morning, find a job, and then the next morning they'd have to find another job. And the workday went from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. They'd work 12 hours and they would receive one denarius, which was about 18 cents. Just enough in that day to feed themselves and feed their family. Then they had to get up to crack a dawn the next day, find another job, earn money to feed their families just for the day. And the theme that's kind of underlying this whole story is this. The landowner has all the power because the landowner has all the resources. The landowner owns the land, he owns the vineyard, he owns the grapes, and he has money to pay the day laborers. So if the landowner chooses to stay home, no one works and no one eats, and their families struggle and starve. And the point of the parable is this, the landowner chooses to initiate. The landowner doesn't stay home, instead he goes after the laborers and he gives them fruitful labor. That is grace. That is God taking the initiative with us. When we couldn't take the initiative with him, when we had no resources of our own, God pursues us. God chases us. That's, in a sense, the essence and the nature of grace itself. Let me give you one verse that illustrates that from Titus chapter 3. Paul wrote, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. That is, God took initiative with us. Why do we have removal of sin and eternal life? Because God chased us down. It's God from beginning and God to the end. That's the nature of God's grace. So let me illustrate that for you. Uh, When you go to the grocery store, you go to Kroger, you go to H-E-B, and you walk in, you see those little kiosks on the end of each aisle. And there's people there who are, they're handing out food, right? They're giving out food. Come over here, you know, get some free food, enjoy my free food. Are you the kind of person that you hit every single one of those, right? Uh, my, I've got a friend who, he wouldn't even pick up a cart first. He'd just walk in and just go, you know, from <laughs> kiosk to kiosk and get all the samples. Might even make a second lap. They're like, oh, you've been here before. No, no, that wasn't me, right? He's just eating everything, right? Are you that kind of person? Or, are you the kind of person you see those food things and you just kind of like avert your eyes? And you're like, no, no. You never, you never take it. Okay, if you're the if you're the latter person, why don't you take their food? Is it that you're always full when you show up at the grocery store? Like I'm not really hungry, or that food isn't really appealing to me, or maybe you're like me and I go. You know, I just don't trust these people because, you know, they're selling something and, you know, I'm gonna take their sample and they're gonna just drop it in my basket and I'm gonna get up to the checkout and I have to pay for it, right? I just don't trust them, right? So what is it? Let me add another wrinkle to it. What if you went to the grocery store and you hadn't eaten in a week? Do you think you'd take the samples? <laughs> you'd be like my friend, like, just making the rounds. Give me another, give me another, give me another, right? Because you're so hungry, you would take whatever was offered. Well, the point that I'm trying to make is this. Uh, one of our great problems is that we don't actually know that we're starving, okay? Because we've filled our lives with so many other things that we're not starving. We don't realize that we're starving. And what the Bible tells us, in fact, is that we are starving and we are dying. We're actually born into this world with a huge gaping hole in our soul. We need a relationship with God. And the only thing that can fill that is the grace of God and Jesus Christ chasing after us. But we've tried to fill that hole with so many other things. We don't know that we're starving, but we're starving, people. And what we need more than anything else is we need God's grace through Jesus chasing us down and fixing that broken relationship with God. And so what I want to do as we work our way through this parable is I want to give you four, uh, four qualities, so to speak, or four uh, components of what does it look like that God has shown us his grace in Jesus Christ. What does it mean that we've experienced God's grace? The first is this. God's grace is unlimited. It knows no boundaries. Read with me in verse 3. So says, he went out about the third hour. And the landowner saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And those, to those he said, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give it to you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, and he did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and he found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you too go into the the vineyard. So what happens in this story, it's a little bit unusual, but the owner of the vineyard, he goes out at 6 a.m. and he hires the first group, but then he goes out again at 9 a.m. and he goes out at noon, then he goes out at 3 p.m., and then he goes out again at 5 p.m. when there's only one hour left in the workday, and he just keeps hiring and hiring and hiring. And in the parable, it's clear that Jesus intends that the landowner is God, the Father. So the point being, it's not that he didn't plan ahead and later realized he just needed more people. The point of the parable is this, that God pursues and he pursues and he pursues, and it's never too late for anyone. God just keeps chasing and chasing and chasing after people because that's who God is. And his grace is sufficient. It's not as if his grace ever runs out. There's more than enough for absolutely every single person. There's no scarcity, so to speak, in the grace of God. But we live in a world where everything always runs out right? Everything is a limited resource. There's always scarcity that we've, we face, and we wonder, is there enough for me? Let me give you an illustration of this. 2017, there was a man named uh, Dr. David Dow. He got on a, a flight, a United flight. He was leaving a conference. He was going to go back home. He needed to see some patients, and so he sat down in his seat that he had paid for, and then he found himself being um, involuntarily deplaned, by which I mean they drug him out of the plane. Right? They just dragged him out of the plane. And in the process of dragging him out of the plane, they hit his head on the armrest and knocked him out, and he was bleeding all over the place. And the crazy thing was he had done nothing wrong. Right? He bought the ticket. He's sitting there quietly. He had done nothing wrong. But what happened was United oversold the flight, and they had four employees that they needed to move from one airport to another airport. So they said, you, 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 and you off the plane, and he politely said, no, I need to see my patients tomorrow, and so they grabbed him and, and dragged him off the plane. Uh, later, he sued and won, if you want to know the rest of the story, right? You can look it up, because, I mean, it was just, there was video of everything. It was just crazy, right? I mean, it's just crazy, but I thought, what if the kingdom of God was like that? You know, I'd, God said, I'd love to have you family, in my family, but we're out of, we're out of space, you, 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 and you. I know you've believed in Jesus, but we just don't have room. I mean, it's crazy for us to even imagine. Because what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross is more than enough for absolutely every single man, woman, and child that's ever existed and ever will exist. Jesus' blood is that good. Listen to these words from the book of Isaiah, chapter 55. This is the Lord inviting us into relationship with him. He says this. Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. What do you need to know? You need just to know that you're thirsty. You need to know that you're hungry. You need to know that you're starving and you need to realize you don't have the resources to buy what God offers because it's priceless. So come buy without money. And the bread and the wine and the honey and everything that God uses as a metaphor is the richness of his grace, that he gives abundantly and freely in Jesus Christ, and there is no limit to his grace. God's grace in Jesus is unlimited. Oh, we lose both of those? All right. Second, God's grace is undeserved. Read with me in verse 8. God's grace is undeserved. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a full denarius, right? So here's the first twist in the plot. Those who who were hired at uh, the 11th hour, they only worked one hour, right? They're hired at 5 p.m. They worked one hour. So how much did they deserve? They deserve one twelfth of a denarius. But how much did they receive? They received an entire denarius. They received much more than they deserved, which is, again, the essence of God's grace is it's undeserved, it's unearned, it's unmerited. God gives more than we deserve because none of us deserve, in a sense, to be pursued by God. Romans 3.23 says this, "'For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God.'" What's the standard for entering into a relationship with God? It's God's absolute moral perfection, and none of us measures that moral perfection. So we don't deserve to be chased. We don't deserve to be pursued. And yet God chases us down. He pursues us in Jesus Christ. And what you see actually in the ministry of Jesus is he's always going after people that the world says don't really deserve it. In in the the parable, in this extended metaphor, the landowner goes into the the marketplace and he gets people who are literally it says they're standing idle that is their lives are useless okay, they they're they're near the bottom of the social rung and their lives are idle or useless or being wasted there's nothing in them inherently that the landowner should chase after them and this Jesus is Jesus using this as an illustration of the father's initiative and in pursuit and grace he's using it as an illustration of his own ministry remember who did Jesus chase after during his ministry well, he went after tax collectors, people who his society saw as complicit with Rome. They were traitors. They're demanding exorbitant taxes from an impoverished people, and so they were, they were outcasts. And he, he went after prostitutes who lived at the edge of society, and he went after lepers who were outside the edge of society, and he touched them, and he ate meals with them, and he befriended them. These were the people that he called part of his friend, friend group and his family And the intention here is that we would, in a sense, see ourselves the same way, that we would see that we're like those who were last hired. And maybe that's how you think of yourself. You're thinking, you know Man, I've been running from God my whole life. Why would he still be chasing me or pursuing me now? I'm so late to the game. I've wasted my life. You're exactly the kind of person that God chases after in Jesus. It's never too late. In fact, uh, one of the most uh, prolific writers in the New Testament was a man named uh, Paul. Originally he was called Saul, Saul of Tarsus. He became an apostle later. He wrote a lot of the New Testament books, and in one of his letters to one of his younger disciples, he said to Timothy, he said, "You know, Timothy, um, if you look at my history, if you look at my background, God should't have chased after me." Right? I, I was self-righteous. I was, I was arrogant, I was proud in my arrogance when I heard about the resurrection of this Jesus and I saw people following him, it made me jealous and angry and I chased after them and I put them in prison and I saw that some of them were put to death and I was, I was hateful actually toward God even though I was outwardly religious and there was nothing in me that God should have pursued but he did pursue me. And Paul wrote this to Timothy. He said, it is a trustworthy statement Deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. In other words, Paul would say, you know what? I, I, I think that God chose me so that people would say, well, Paul could be chosen. Anyone can be chosen. Because Paul, Paul's life is an absolute wreck. And that may be how you think of your own life right now. I'm going to tell you, it's never too late. And it doesn't matter what you've done in the past or how long you have waited. God is chasing after you. The landowner went out at 6 a.m. He went out At 9 a.m., he went out at noon, he went out at 3 p.m., he went out at 5 p.m. He just kept chasing after people because he wants you in his family. And the intention of the parable is actually that we would all see ourselves as those who were not worthy to be pursued, but God chased us anyway. And having brought us into his family, he puts us into productive labor, so to speak. He makes our lives meaningful. Maybe in a sense for the full day, maybe just for an hour, but he makes our lives meaningful. Now, during this Easter season, one of the things I've done is I've gone back and I've been reading some of the resurrection accounts, right? Just trying to get my heart and mind at the right, in the right place for this season. And uh, there's one story in the Gospel of John that just kind of jumped out at me again. It's in uh, John chapter 21. So at, at this point in time, remember, Jesus, he's risen from the dead, he's appeared to his disciples, and then he says to his disciples, I want you to go north to Galilee. I want you to just wait for me in Galilee. So the disciples go north to Galilee, and they're waiting for Jesus. They're waiting for Jesus, and they're still waiting for Jesus. And finally Peter says, you know what? I'm going fishing. (laughs) I don't know what else to do. Peter was a fisherman. That's all he knew. He'd grown up on the Sea of Galilee, so he goes fishing. And some of the other disciples, James and John, they were fishermen too. They go, well, I guess we'll go with you too. We don't know what else to do. We're just standing around waiting for Jesus. Let's go fishing. So they go fishing, and they're fishing all night long. Remember, these are professional fishermen. They've grown up on the Sea of Galilee. It's how they've made their living. Probably generations of their family have made their living fishing. They fish all night long, and they catch nothing. or they catch absolutely nothing. And it's morning, dawn is coming, and they're pulling their ships into shore, and they see this man standing on the shore. They don't know who it is, but this man calls out to them and goes, Hey, have you caught anything? <laughs> this is Jesus kind of, you know, just kind of needling his disciples. They don't know it's him yet. Have you caught anything? They're like, nope. He goes, why don't you just throw your net on the other side of the boat? <laughs> it's the same lake, right? It's like, okay, whatever. Okay. For some reason, they just listen to him, and they throw it on the other side of the boat. Remember what happens? Huge haul of fish. In fact, John records the number later, 153. Their nets are about to break. It's huge. And as they see the nets full, the veil is pulled back from John's eyes, and he turns to Peter and says, it's Jesus. And Peter, he's stripped down for fishing. He puts his robe back on. He dives into the water. You know, Mr. No Self-Control guy. He just jumps into the water. I've got to be with Jesus. He swims to shore, and there's Jesus. And this is the crazy part about the story to me. Jesus is there, he's already made a fire, he's got fish that are already cooking on the fire, and he has bread for them to eat, but when they pull the fish up onto the shore, he says, hey, why don't you bring a few of those fish you just caught, add them to the fire. Now, the reason that's just so remarkable to me is, Jesus didn't need their contribution, right? And apart from Jesus telling them where to throw the net, they would have caught nothing, but in his grace and his kindness, he says, hey, why don't you, why don't you add to the fire? Okay. God doesn't need us. He's whole. He's complete. He doesn't need us for a relationship, but he wants a relationship with us. And he doesn't need the contribution that we make, in a sense, to the kingdom when we're sharing the gospel and we're trying to make disciples. Uh, he does all that through us anyway, and he could probably do it more efficiently Apart from us, you could just write it in the sky, right, or just send it email to everybody through. It. I mean, whatever you just do it better than we do it. But he says, you know what? Why don't you, why, don't you, why don't you bring a few of those fish that I caught through you? Well, you caught them. Let's just call it. Let's just say you caught them, and put them on the fire, and let's let's share a meal together. That's grace, right? Completely and utterly undeserved, unlimited. So how do you how do you Enter into that grace. Well, if you don't deserve it, you can't earn it. What you do is you just actually receive it. It's, it is, uh, it's a gift. It's a gift from God. John chapter 1, verse 12. John wrote, As many as received him, that is Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So John says, here's a synonym for believe. It is to receive. When somebody offers you a gift, They actually really don't want you to pay or offer something back. They just want you to say, Thank you. Just say, Thank you. That's how you receive God's grace the first time, but then you receive it in a sense every single day as a follower of Jesus, where you realize all that I have in my life that's good is a gift from God. God, thank you. Thank you for the day. Didn't deserve it, but I'm grateful. Third characteristic of God's grace is that it is not fair. Grace is unfair. Chapter 20, verse 10. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden in the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and he said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first shall be last. So those who were hired at 9 a.m. and noon and 3 p.m. and 5 p.m. all got a denarius. They were paid for an entire day's wages. So those who worked... From 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., they worked all 12 hours. They came to be paid, and they're like, hey, 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 what do you mean we only get a denarius, too? You gave them a denarius. That's not fair. That's not fair. Philip Yancey wrote a really great book on God's grace, and he made this observation. He said, and this may be us as well, he said, many Christians who study this parable identify with the employees who put in a full day's work rather than the add-ons at the end of the day. We like to think of ourselves as responsible workers, and the employer's strange behavior baffles us, as it did the original hearers. We risk missing the story's point, that God dispenses gifts, not wages. None of us gets paid according to merit, for none of us comes close to satisfying God's requirement. For a perfect life. So some of us see ourselves as those who came really late to the game. Some of us see ourselves as, no, we were there early and we deserve it. But we forget that we all would be just stuck standing in the marketplace with useless lives if God hadn't chased after us, right? We're, we're all, in a sense, the ones who are late to the game. But God doesn't, in that sense, treat all of them equally. But hear me now. He, he doesn't ever do anything that's less than just. right. He's never less than just. Uh, Chapter 20, verse 2, the first group says um, they made an agreement with the landowner. Then he uses that same word in verse 13. He answered and said to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? That word for agree is a Greek word symphoneo, from which we get symphony. It means uh, to harmonize together. And it was used of Contracts. So what happened with the first group is they made a contract with the landowner. And the landowner honored the contract. Why do we make contracts with people? Because we don't trust them, right? Because people will rip us off, because people won't tell the truth, because people would cheat us. So we make a contract. We make something that's legally binding. What happened with the first group? They made a contract with the landowner because they didn't trust the landowner. The next group that comes along, he says, you want to work in my field? And they say, we'd love to work in your field. He says, well, just go into the field and start working and whatever's right, I'll give that to you. And they go, great, thanks. They trust the landowner. Each group after that, they just trust the landowner because the point of the parable is the landowner will never do anything that's less than just, but he wants to be generous. And he wants to show grace and he wants to do above and beyond. Right? Because that's his nature. Right? That's the nature of the landowner. Beyond just, he wants to be generous. Fourth characteristic is this. God's grace is unparalleled. It's unparalleled. Everything in our world operates according to merit. Right? You get what you deserve, or sometimes you don't get what you deserve, but you get less than you deserve. You don't get more than you deserve. Right? It's all about merit. Uh, I remember one of my uh, profs, my first Semesters in economics, he, he used the, the phrase, it's actually a, an acrostic, tanstoffel. It's an acrostic, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch, right? Not in this world. Same principle applies uh, actually even in religion. Judaism, if you obey, then you'll be blessed. If you disobey, then you'll be cursed. Islam, follow the five pillars, you get into heaven. Don't follow the five pillars, you go to hell. Hinduism and Buddhism follows the principle of karma. You do good, you get good back. Do more good, you get more good back. Do enough good, next lifetime, you're going to be reincarnated at a higher level, higher level. You do bad, you're going to get bad back. You do more bad, you get more bad back. You're going to be reincarnated at a lower level, right? It's all karma, right? It's all about merit. The one thing that sets Christianity apart is grace. God, in His infinite kindness, gives us what we don't deserve, what we can't earn, and He gives it to us absolutely freely. Read with me verse 17. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And they will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. So Jesus gives them this really clever parable about God's graciousness, and then he predicts to them the ultimate act of his grace which is his death on their behalf his crucifixion and then his resurrection so that he can offer them life so it's the ultimate act of grace right God uh, punishes our sins in Jesus that's not fair God gives us as a gift the eternal life that Jesus earned that's not fair but we don't need fair we need grace right we need God's kindness to us so let me tell you one cat story, because it's Easter, right? Yeah, I mean, we celebrated that I'm free of all cats, but um, I do have this treasure trove of cat stories, so I'm gonna share one with you. Um, one of our first cats was named Tuxedo or Tux. Years ago, you may have heard of, about Tuxedo, and um, again, Tuxedo didn't add any value to my life, <laughs> I, don't need, I don't need cats. Um, but I did discover that... Um, Tuxedo kind of, like, earned his right to live because he could hunt and feed himself. So I'm like, okay, that's, you know, we can, we can live with that kind of relationship with a cat. So Tuxedo would hunt and frequently would bring a bird or and just, you know, kill the bird, lay the bird, eat part of it, and then just lay it on the, the doorstep, right? His offering to the family. Here's his contribution. He would do, do it with mice, bring mice. And then he actually brought, like, a full-size rabbit one time. I'm like, wow, okay, that, you bowed up. That's okay. Um, so you know, and, and he dropped this offering, and Trishy would you know walk out the door. She'd be like, "Ooh, thanks, right?" And you know, pet the cat. Okay, way to go, cat, right? Um, you contributed something in your cat mind to the family. Now, here's 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 where I'm going with this metaphor. In the metaphor, here's the bad part of the metaphor. I'm the cat. Yeah, I'm I'm tuxedo. God doesn't actually need me in his family. My contributions, eh. But he welcomes me and wants me in his family. And he praises me for what he does through me. It's all of grace, right? From the beginning to the end, it's all of grace. So how do we apply this? I'm going to give you uh, just two words to think about this morning. Uh, Receive and give. The first is receive. Receive. If you have not ever actually had that moment where you, for the first time, just said thank you to Jesus for the sacrifice that he made, let me encourage you just to receive it. You need to, um, maybe this is the moment where you, you stop running from God, or maybe this is the moment where you stop trying to earn God's favor. And instead, it's the moment where you finally realize um, it's so great, I have nothing to give back to God for removing my debt of sin and giving me eternal life. So you just say thanks and you receive it as a gift. And you can do that right where you're sitting. Um, you don't have to bow your head or close your eyes. You can if you want. You can speak out loud or you can just speak in your own heart. God is everywhere and hears everything, even the meditations of our heart. So maybe this is the moment where uh, you just call out to God. Say, God, thank you. feeding me. I now realize that I'm, I'm starving and what I, I need a relationship with you. Thank you. The moment that you do that, that sin, your, your missteps in life that have created distance between you and God, that's removed. That that chasm is crossed by Jesus. And now you have a life with him. And if you have life with him, the kind of life that he gives is eternal life. It's life that lasts forever, but it's a quality of life as well that you get to experience in, in intimacy and fellowship with God and with his people. And I would encourage you, maybe this morning is that moment for you to make that decision for the first time. If you've already made that decision and Uh, you're following Jesus, Uh, your word is give. If you've received a super abundant gift, and it's really more than you can use for yourself because it's unlimited, the natural response is to share it, right? Just just give it away. And I want to challenge us, church. Uh, We we possess what the world most needs, and they may not know that they need it, and they may be running away from it. They may even angrily reject us, but it's still true. So I want to challenge us to have courage and boldness and kindness and Let's get to the gospel with our friends and family. Let's not, let's not back away, no matter what their response is. Again, we're, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying be, be aggressive, but I'm saying be truthful and be honest and be courageous. Let's tell them about the, the grace that we've experienced in Jesus Christ. And let's not miss that opportunity, that moment. Easter is just a great moment for us to remember that we're rich and people around us are not rich. They're poor. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. that you have made us rich through your grace in Jesus Christ. I thank you that we don't have to uh, live in fear of the future. Instead, we have hope. I thank you that all of that was accomplished because you poured out your grace upon us in Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you for holding nothing back. I thank you for being willing to, to suffer this horrific pain because of our sin. I thank you for going all the way to the cross and all the way to the grave. And I thank you Father, for raising Jesus, demonstrating that you you said yes, his sacrifice is enough for all of us. I pray that this week our hearts would be refreshed in gratitude for Jesus. It's in his powerful, precious, sacrificial name we pray. Amen.